Welcome to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2006. This episode is titled, Overcoming Life's Tragedies. All of us experience tragedy in life. These events are designed by God to train and position us to do what God called us to do. Listen to the story of how one very ordinary man encountered God and overcame depression, despair, and self-pity to become one of the great business leaders of the 20th century. What I'm going to do today is I want to tell you a story. And the story is about a man that was born in 1875. He was born in Hamilton, Missouri. He was uh, born to, the, to a father who was a Baptist pastor and a farmer. In Hamilton, Missouri, as you can imagine, because it was a small place, the church did not pay the pastor. And there are probably some churches that, have, that are that way today. There are probably some pastors that are paid that say they're not really paid very well. But in Hamilton, Missouri, he got paid virtually nothing. In fact, occasionally what he would get would be a chicken or a cow or maybe a, a pig or something, maybe a, a bushel of corn. That would be pretty much all he would get. So in this thriving metropolis uh, for Jim, this young lad, to survive along with his family, what they had to do is they worked the farm. When Jim was eight years old, he was getting up at four in the morning. He and his dad would go out into the, to the barn, and they would milk the cows. One morning, it was cold, it was wet. And Jim went out there to milk the cows. His dad looked over at him, and his, his feet are bare, and it's cold, and it's wet. And the dad says, Jim, uh, what happened? He said, Jim said, well, my, the bottoms of my shoes are worn out, and I put cardboard in them, but when I ran over here, it was wet, and the cardboard fell apart, so I just took off you know, the wet tops of my shoes. That was better than having the wet tops on. And so the father said, Jim, when we go back to the house, I want you to come in my study. And so uh, study is where the dad prepared the sermons. That was a serious place. It was also a place where you got lectures and discipline. So it wasn't an exciting invitation. But nevertheless, Jim went into the study, sat down, and his dad said, Jim, I've got something I need to tell you. Uh, Your mother and I are not going to be able to buy you clothes and shoes any longer. You're going to have to work and earn your own money. So Jim learned at a very young age to be industrious and to work. He started uh, raising pigs. He had a garden. He started selling products. He uh, raised melons, watermelons of various types, and he began to raise money and buy his own clothes and shoes. So he learned to be industrious early on. When Jim was a teenager, he went through a very traumatic experience with his father. His father was the pastor of the Baptist church. Some of the leaders of the church decided that uh, they didn't agree with some of his doctrine. So they elected to remove him from his pastorate. That was a very hard thing because Jim's father was very dedicated to the church, very committed to the flock, very committed to preaching the gospel, very committed to teaching. And this was really his lifeblood. He literally worked the farm and spent time as as a pastor. That's all he ever did. So uh, Jim watched his dad go through that and saw the pain, but he also saw his dad not let that setback stop him. He saw his dad press on and go forward. He saw his dad overcome the obstacles. His dad went into politics and uh, had a modicum of success, but the point was the dad was not going to let that setback stop him. In 1895, Jim's 20 years old. His dad is on his deathbed. His dad invites each of his children to come to visit with him one last time. Now, in this family, there had been 12 children born. Five of them had died as children, so there were seven left. Jim was one of seven. So when Jim's turn came, he came in to be with his dad. Tears are flowing down his cheeks as his dad is talking to him. And his dad 
wanted to talk to him because he wanted to tell him what God had called him to do. He said, Jim, you need to be a merchant. And I've made arrangements with a local dry store owner, and you need to go to work for him. A few days later, Jim's dad died. And Jim recalled that, that moment with his dad, that tender moment when his dad commissioned him to go and work for that merchant. So he went into town, and he met with a merchant. And he said, my dad has told me I need to come work for you. The merchant said, Jim, I want to be real honest with you. I really don't have any openings, but out of respect for your dad, I'm going to put you to work. And I'm going to pay you a penny an hour. A penny an hour. Now, that takes a long time to save up much money at a penny an hour. So Jim jumped at that. He went to work at this dry goods store and began to serve. And he served well. And remember, Jim was very good at working because he learned early on to work hard. So he came in and started working hard and really began to show up the other clerks. Now, what do you think the other clerks did? Well, they became jealous. So now you've got the other clerks really allying against him and making life difficult for him. Nevertheless, Jim persevered and pressed through, and that was a characteristic that Jim practiced many times in his life. He persevered and pressed through the obstacles. For three years, he worked at this store and enjoyed good favor, and along the way, he got a few raises. When he was 23 years old, he began to have medical issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor said, uh, Jim, you have what's called consumption. Consumption is basically TB of the lungs. We have no way to treat that. The only thing we can tell you is you would be better off in a dry, arid climate. Well, Jim was not excited about leaving Missouri. I guess all of you that know anything about Missouri know it's not dry and arid. And so he began to look at options, talk to his uh, mother and his sisters and brothers, and decided that he would have to go to Colorado. So he boarded a train for Denver, Colorado, and went up there, and when he got off the train, this big sprawling city, and of course Hamilton is not quite as big as Denver, and he doesn't know quite what to make of it, so he begins to wander the streets. And he comes across a, just, a dry goods store called Justin Dry Goods. He walks in, and he applies for a job, and they hire him. And so he starts work at Justin Dry Goods, and very quickly he has the same experience in Justin Dry Goods that he had back in Hamilton, and that is he's out working the other clerks. And so they're getting jealous and beginning to give him a lot of pushback. But nevertheless, he pressed on. He did not let their opposition stop him. He was there first. He stayed late. He did whatever jobs he had to do. He had the dirty jobs. He cleaned. He swept. He, and he did a great job of taking care of customers because one of the things he learned growing up was the golden rule. His dad was a fanatic about the golden rule. And he beat that, literally beat that into the kids. So by the time he's adult, I mean, the golden rule is just, that's hardwired in him. So when people come in, they were asking for Jim. They liked Jim because everybody knew that Jim would treat them well. And so Jim prospered. Despite the opposition from the other clerks, he prospered. And Jim had a vision in his mind. The vision was, you know, I'd like to own my own store. Well, pretty soon, Jim is getting kind of tired of Denver because it's not anything like Hamilton, Missouri. And he hears about a little town called Longmont. Longmont's about 25 miles north of Denver. And he hears about this butcher store for sale. So um, he gets on a train, runs up there, and uh, calls on the butcher store owner, finds out indeed the butcher store is for sale, and uh, he can buy it for $300. Well, believe it or not, over the prior about six years, Jim had saved about $300. At a penny an hour, you've got you to save a lot of, lot of money. 
I didn't do the calculation to see how many hours that took, but it took a long time. But anyway, he had that was his life savings, $300. So he, he uh, sent a telegraph to his mom, send me my $300. Mom sends it to him. He cuts the deal. Boom, he is now a store owner. He, he is a proud owner of a butcher shop. Now, those of us that today have done acquisitions know that acquisitions should not be done quickly. Okay? There's a process called due diligence, right? Where you, you investigate you know, what you're getting ready to buy. Well, Jim knew nothing about due diligence. So he bought this butcher shop pretty much based on a conversation with the owner. It was a deal done probably in a matter of two or three days. So Jim is a proud owner of this butcher shop. In the first week in the business, he discovers something, which we normally call a skeleton. And what he discovers is this, there, that the chief customer of the butcher shop is the local hotel. And the only reason that the butcher shop does business with a hotel is because the butcher shop provides the cook bourbon every week. So when Jim finds out the deal, of course, he's sitting there saying, well, my goodness, I got this investment of the shop, and this is a big part of my business, and if I don't do this, they won't do business with me. This is not a good deal. So he proceeds to go ahead and abide by the deal. He, he, he provides the bourbon for the, the cook. Going home that night, Jim just felt terrible because this violated everything within him. Number one, bribery. And number two, the whole idea of taking alcohol and trying to medicate your pain with alcohol was totally anathema to him. Those of us that grew up Baptist like me understand that. Baptists are not into drinking. That's not a deal. So he was a very staunch uh, anti-alcohol person. So Jim, just, he just rolled and rolled that night. As he thought, gee, what have I done? I've, you know, I've just sold my soul to, to the devil here in providing this, this liquor for this man. So he resolved, I'm not doing it again. I don't care if the business goes out. I'm not doing it. So he tells the cook, I'm not providing you any more liquor. Well, the cook says, fine, we won't do any more business. And in about a week, Jim is out of business. $300 down the tubes and no job. So this was, needless to say, a difficult experience, but Jim remembered his dad and his dad being fired by the Baptist church. And he saw his dad persevere through that very difficult situation. So he said, I can persevere. So Jim began to walk the streets of Longmont, and he stumbled upon a dry goods store that was owned by Mr. Callahan and Mr. Johnson. And he walks in, and he says, can I speak to Mr. Callahan? And they allowed him to go in and visit Mr. Callahan. So he walks into Mr. Callahan's office and says, Mr. Callahan, uh, my name is Jim, and God has called me to be in the dry goods business. Well, needless to say, has anybody ever done that? Had somebody come in your office and say, God's called me to be in your, in your business? Well, Mr. Callahan's a little taken back by this. you know. Mr. Callahan's a Christian. He said, uh, God has called you to be in the dry goods business. I see, young man. Well, uh, let's talk about that. What does that mean to you? And so they had a nice conversation. Uh, at the end of the conversation, Mr. Callahan says, you know, Jim, I, I appreciate uh, your perspective, and I'm very sympathetic to your perspective, but I don't have any openings. Jim says, sir, I don't care what you want me to do. I'll do anything. I will take any salary, whatever you want. Well, it's the fall. Mr. Callahan says, you know, we are probably going to have a busy Christmas, so why don't you... Why don't you come to work and kind of be our, our, our fill-in guy? We'll, we'll have extra business. Some people want some extra time off. You can just be the fill-in person. And Jim says, great, I'll do it. So 
Over the next few months, Jim's the fill-in guy, and he absolutely knocks the socks off everybody, particularly Mr. Callahan with his, his hard work, his commitment, his discipline, his practice of the golden rule with the customers, his ability to do excellent work, his willingness to come early, stay late, do whatever was necessary to get the job done. So needless to say, Mr. Callahan says, hey, I think we got a winner here. Now the way Callahan and Johnson worked is they had a chain of dry goods stores. It wasn't a big chain, it was a small chain, maybe five, six stores. But they knew when they opened a store, the critical thing to make that store work was a partner to run the store. The manager had to be an equity partner with them. So basically they would go in and open a store and Johnson would own a third, Callahan would own a third, and the manager would own a third. And that's how they would split the profits of that store. So they decided to send Jim in for training. So they sent him to Evanston, Wyoming, the thriving metropolis. And again, he was in a small town in a small store. Now he was being trained to be a store manager. In 1902, they came to him and said, Jim, we think you're ready to have your own store. So he said, there's this little town in Wyoming, you know, and it's called Kimmerer. Has anybody ever heard of Kimmerer? Uh, we've got a few that have, okay. It's a mining town. It has 900 people and 21 saloons. So you can tell what they do up there. They either mine or in the saloons. So we want to put a store in up there and we want you to be a part owner. It'll cost you $2,000. Jim says $2,000, yes, $2,000. If you're gonna be a third partner with us, $2,000. Well, by this time, Jim had saved up $500. So he pulled his $500 out of the bank. He went out and borrowed 1,500 and he became a partner. And on April 14th, right before tax day, they opened the store in 1902 in Kimmer, Wyoming. And the store was operated very well. It was, it was sparsely, uh, uh, the decor was not great. Uh, they did not have the, the latest fixtures. Basically they took boxes, crates and things like that to, to basically create the counters and the, uh, the chairs and things in the store. It was a very sparse and Spartan looking environment, but it was a store and he operated on some very simple principles that made it successful. One is quality merchandise, two is great service, three is cash only, no credit, and four is the golden rule. They insisted on treating people very well. They opened for business at seven in the morning and they would close whenever there was no more customers coming down to the store, which was usually 10 or 11 at night. Now on Sunday, they allowed themselves to open at nine, but every other day they were open at seven, basically open all day. Now this went on for five years, and Jim and his young wife, Berta, pretty much ran the store. They, they had an apartment above the store, and then the store was on the first floor. And they ran it, and they, had, they made a profit from day one. They, from day one, they were able to turn a profit. So after five years, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Callahan came to Jim and said, Jim, uh, you know, we're getting up in age, and we really don't want to, you know, expand anymore. Why don't you buy some of our stores? And Mr. Callahan had already had a conversation with Jim and told Jim, Jim, if I were younger, man, I would expand like crazy. I think there's great opportunity in the dry goods business here in the United States. And so Jim had kind of stored that conversation away. So when the opportunity to buy the three stores came, he said, hey, I'm gonna do it. $30,000 was the price tag. He bought three stores, all of them in Wyoming. Have any of you all been to Wyoming? It's not any more populated now than it was then. <laughs> you know? And now he's got three stores in Wyoming selling dry goods for $30,000. Well, he and his wife worked hard. At the end of two years, they had paid off 
the $30,000, and they had opened another four or five stores. And I think they had about eight or nine stores at the end of 1909. And now Jim is, you know, looking at the reality. You know, we need to centralize some things. We need to centralize our county. We need to centralize our distribution. So they moved to Salt Lake City, which, believe it or not, is not far from where the stores were. So they relocated to Salt Lake City in 1909, and uh, Jim and Berta began to, uh, to set back a little bit because now we've got enough stores to where we've got enough income coming in that we don't have to work from 7 a.m. to midnight every day. We can actually smell the roses a little bit. So Berta decided to join a local church. She did. She joined a Methodist church there, and the pastor, Dr. Short, really welcomed them uh, warmly. Jim was a little reserved because he's still burning with pain from his, the way his dad was treated as he, uh, when he was a young man. So he wasn't willing to join the church, but he would attend, and he certainly would be a friend with Dr. Short. Dr. Short spent many, many hours at their home uh, visiting with him and in conversation with him. In 1910, Jim and Berta were sitting back and enjoying the fruits of their labors. They had reached 14 stores, $662,000 in revenue, and they said, you know, we've done well. We've done well we, we, over the last decade, and we've been married. they've been married since 1900. They had had two boys, and they had worked the stores together, and they decided they needed to take a honeymoon, which they had never taken before. So they decided they wanted to go the, to the Holy Land. Before they went, the doctor said to Berta, Berta, you really need to get your tonsils out. They're inflamed, and if you get over there and have a problem, I don't know that you'll be able to, to be cared for. So Berta said, fine. So they, she went and had her tonsils out, and uh, the procedure was fairly simple. Uh, when she woke up, and uh, she decided she'd walk home. So she gets up, and she walks out of the clinic, and she's walking, you know. And back in those days, they walked. You know, we don't do that anymore. But they walked for blocks and blocks. So it, nothing for them to walk for, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever. So she's walking home, and unexpectedly, a rain shower came along. So she gets soaked. And she's just had surgery, so her body's pretty susceptible to disease. By the time she gets home, she is coughing. Within two days, she's very sick, and she contracted pneumonia. And on December 26, 1910, she died. Jim was thrown into a tailspin. Jim is not the kind of man that could live by himself well. He desperately needed Berta. Berta was his encouragement. Berta kept him going on the straight and narrow. Berta would be there to, uh, to, to, to tell him he could do it when nobody else would. Berta was by his side day and night to be sure that they, they did what they needed to do. And so now Berta is gone. Jim goes into a two-year depression, and he doesn't know what to do. What am I going to do now? He had a hard time sleeping. He had a hard time believing that God was good. How would God take his precious burden from him? I mean, this just made no sense. And it's because he couldn't believe God was good, he couldn't pray. He had bad dreams, bad dreams about financial collapse and problems with his family. One night on a business trip in January of 1912, He's, he's gone so to such despair that he's decided to start drinking. The very thing that he loathed when he grew up, the very thing, the reason, or the thing he loathed about the butcher shop was providing that bourbon. And now his, his despair was so great that he succumbed to drinking, and he started drinking. There were times when he was so depressed that he contemplated suicide. He was in great despair. So it was January of 1912. It was a cold night. He's there on business. His business is not doing well, as you might expect. So he goes outside, 
He's going to go down to the Bowery. The Bowery is where you go and get drunk. And so he's walking down the street, and he hears this sound. He doesn't know quite what it is, but, you know, it's drawing him. So he's, he starts following the sound, and pretty soon he can hear it's, they're singing, somebody's singing a hymn. And he says, I, I recognize that hymn. Well, it was Jesus lover, of my, Jesus, lover of my soul, which was his mother's favorite hymn. So he'd heard that hymn many, many times. And so he was drawn in to this mission. As he walked into the door, what he sees is a group of men, unkempt, they're unshaven, ragged clothes, smelly, dirty, um, just the down-and-out people of the world. He looks at them and thinks to himself, I feel the way they look and smell. So he says, I need to be here. So he goes in, and he stands, and he just listens to the music. And then pretty soon, a preacher gets up, and he begins to share. And the preacher said, you know, I lost my wife, and I lost my job. And I went into the ditch. And immediately, Jim connected. He says, that's what's happened to me. I mean, I've lost my wife, and I've lost my way in business, and I'm in the ditch. And the man went on to share about how he found, when he focused on Christ, and he focused on God's goodness in the midst of difficult situations, and recognized that God was working good, even though it didn't look good in the natural, as he began to focus on that, how that lifted him up out of despair, Jim was mesmerized by this message. Mesmerized. And he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit go all over him. And he began to reflect upon the, the parable of the prodigal son, which he'd heard his father teach so many times. And he realized that he had been the prodigal. The problem was not God, it was him. And so as he left that mission, he took some money and put it in the hands of the director of the mission and said, thank you. You have lifted my soul out of the state of despair. He went back to his hotel room almost giddy. Almost giddy because suddenly he dis discovered victory in the midst of despair and defeat. He was so excited to get back to, to Salt Lake City and share with Dr. Short what God had done that night, how he had been touched and transformed by a new perspective on reality. In fact, what he had been given was God's perspective on reality. He was living in his own perspective of reality, and living there was death. Living there was despair and hopelessness. But gaining God's perspective, he had hope, he had victory, and he had purpose and destiny. He had this, this deep sense of destiny in him he hadn't had in a long time. So Jim was greatly excited now. He got home and to his children, he said, you know, I think our, your mother would want us to take that Holy Land trip. And I'm, I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to be a different father. I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to be a different business owner. I'm going to run this business as unto the Lord. I'm going to steward it to glorify God. And to Dr. Shorty says, I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to participate any way I can to advance the kingdom of God through the church. So he engaged in all areas of life. He asked Dr. Short, would you go with us to the Holy Lands? We're going to go and have that trip that Bertie and I were going to have, and we're not able to take. So Dr. Short went with them. They went to the Holy Lands, had a wonderful time. On the way back, their journey took them to England, and they were supposed to board the Titanic. Now, they weren't going to board on the second journey. They were going to, on the first journey, they were going to board on the second journey. Well, the Titanic didn't show up for the second journey. And so this caused Jim 
to have to redirect re, uh, his uh, return plans. He had to find alternate route back to America. And when he did, he ran into a lady who wound up being his future wife. And so as he, as he marveled at how God had touched him and how God was directing events, he was so firmly convinced about his destiny and how God was putting things into his life for a purpose and for a reason, and never again was he going to let despair and hopelessness get him down. From there, Jim built an incredible company, a company that in 1927 had almost 900 stores and revenue of $153 million. It went public that year. And even when it went through the Depression, it still thrived. And it thrives even today. Jim went to be with the Lord when he was 95 years old. In fact, he went to be with the Lord on December 26th of 1971, exactly 61 years to the day after Berta went to be with the Lord. He worked all of his life tirelessly. Not only did he build a great business, he understood a lot about building businesses. In the, in the late 19, uh, uh, about 1918, he realized that to build his business, one of the most critical things for him to do was to find the partners, those partners that were going to run the stores. So what he did is he set aside the day-to-day -day operations, gave that to one of his best friends, and he focused on finding the people and writing the policy to build this great organization. He went on from there to, to um, found an experimental farm in Florida, which is a place where down-and-out people could go and they could farm their land. He made the price very easy. It was also a place where they practiced uh, the latest technology, the latest uh, ideas for farming. He established a secret 60-acre retirement home for pastors and ministers because he realized there were many, many pastors, just like his dad, that were poorly paid and had no way to retire and support themselves. So he funded that retirement center for these pastors and ministers and paid for them to go and live in that retirement village. He became a prolific writer. He wrote many books and, and co-authored books with others. And all of this happened because of one thing. What happened to Jim that day in 1912 in that mission? Because he came face to face with God and face to get face with an incredible reality that all of us need to get. And that is physical reality is undergirded by spiritual reality. Now I know that sounds very philosophical, but it's powerful. Jim was not functioning very well as a human being, as a father, as a business owner, as a contributor to society before he went into that mission. When he came out, he had a revelation a new worldview, a biblical worldview that enabled him now to go out and make a difference in every realm of life. And this is the critical thing. If we want to make a difference in the marketplace, if we want to make a difference in our churches, if we want to make a difference in our families, in our communities, we have got to have God's perspective. That is the only valid perspective. As we get that perspective, we are armed then with the tools that we need to live life. So what he discovered was that spiritual reality undergirds physical reality and enables us to walk with God in physical reality. And that's how James Cash Penny became the man that he was. Isn't that phenomenal? Okay, well, let me pray for you. Thank you again for coming. Father, we do thank you for this, this occasion. We thank you for these people that have gathered to
to, to go deeper with you, to understand what it is to walk with you at work. Lord, would you give us the grace to go deeper? Would you give us the grace to really walk in your reality in every area of life, to really apply your word as the handbook, the handbook for all of life? I commit these people to you, Lord. May they be good soil for you to advance the kingdom of God through the work of their hands. Father, let everybody in this room know they count. Wherever they are, whatever they do, they count. They count for the glory of God and to advance the kingdom. So, Father, we give you praise and glory. We thank you for this time. Thank you for the food, the fellowship, and the fun. And, Lord, most of all, thank you for the story of truth and inspiration from Mr. Penny. So, Father, we give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've been challenged by this podcast to consider biblical work principles in the workplace. For more information, visit strategieswork.com. Or to give feedback or sign up for our newsletter, please send an email to podcast at strategieswork.com. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time.